You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, forward, by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The world is filled with many questions, such as Do giants exist? What is junk DNA? Does it mean that you're trash? Do you ever wonder if aliens have underwater bases in our oceans? And that's why there are so many UFO sightings off the coasts of islands all over the world. How serious even is climate change and when should we start building our rafts? Hello everyone, you may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore the answers to these questions and many, many more in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything, available everywhere you get your podcasts. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Hey, real quick before we get the interview going, I just want to set this one up. I, you know, Angie and I have uh, lately been interviewing these presenters, TV presenters, scientists, and now producers of all of these major programs that you're seeing across many streaming services. And and this one with Big Beast, I just was blown away that I was able to sit down and talk to Tom Hugh Jones and Bill Markham. These are the producers of Big Beast, which is airing right now on Apple TV+. And I was able to screen it, and it's an amazing series. Obviously, it's, it's always fun to do the research on these animals, present them on the podcast, and then see it live in these shows. And, and Big Beast is no exception, as you'll hear in the interview. You know, what a producer does, that's kind of why I wanted to set this up a little bit, these are the brains behind these documentaries. They are the ones that come up with the ideas. They go seek the funding. Then they hire the, the, the film crews, the directors, the talent that you, you see uh, speaking. So in Big Beasts, it's Tom Hiddleston, who some of you know is Loki in the Marvel Universe. But, you know, to, to be able to ask them, the questions of, you know, where do these ideas come from? How do you get these made? Some of the the resume of these two producers was just astounding. That's why I was just, again, was so excited. Tom Hugh Jones, who has won Emmy Awards and BAFTA Awards for his work on planet Earth, on human planet, on hostile planet. Both of them have worked on Tiny World. Now they're working on Big Beast, but you've also seen it on Animal uh, which is uh, on a different streaming service, Night on Earth, things that you have seen, these producers are the originators of these shows. And so it was it was just a really great opportunity to be able to chat with them, talk about talk to them about the film process. I do ask Tom about the Saiga, which you want to you want to listen to later in the interview. Uh, you know, we always talk about the Saiga in the podcast and and their story when the Planet Earth 2 film crew was out, watching them drop 
dead from this this severe disease. So I asked him about that. And just a quick reminder, you can stream Big Beast on Apple TV+. Plus. It's an, it's an amazing series. I hope you really enjoy it, and I hope you really enjoy this interview. Welcome to the All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. Uh, another huge, amazing interview. Uh, this one, again, it, you've got to listen to this. This is... I, I love when we get these filmmakers on, people that have made films that we've all watched. And I love hearing the stories behind the camera or the genesis of these programs. I'm really blessed to have Tom Hugh Jones and Bill Markham. They're the producers of Apple TV Plus's new series, Big Beasts. So welcome, Bill and Tom. Hi there. How are you doing? <laughs> doing great. Yeah, yeah, good morning there. Yeah, I did. The, the other side of the planet, we were talking a little bit before we got going, and and Bill and Tom are in Bristol in the UK, and I'm over here in New Zealand. So literally on the opposite ends of the earth as we do this interview. But thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Big Beast, it, it's going to be fun to talk about this series. I, I was very, thank you very much for, for letting me get some sneak peeks at it. Another amazing documentary series. These, these new series coming out are just incredible. I guess just uh, Bill or Tom, whoever wants to go first, just if you give us just a little bit of your background, how did you get into filmmaking? Um, well, we've both got quite interesting uh, origin stories, I guess. Um, I was lucky enough when I was a tiny kid to live in Romania, which um, may not jump out at people as a wildlife haven, but I can promise you it is. And we lived next to a lake which was full of uh, frogs and toads and terrapins. And one of my earliest memories is walking up to my dad, aged about five, with a snake roll up in my arms. And my dad, who was not into that kind of thing, kind of turned to me and said, Dad, put that down. I said, it's fine, Dad, it's a grass snake. And he said, well, put it down anyway. And I said, it's not, it's, it's not venomous. And he said, well, how do you know? And I said, well, I've got a book. And he went, well, anyway, put it down anyway. <laughs> so I think eventually kicking his boot, I put down the snake. But I think ever since then, I've been in love with all animals, particularly plants and amphibians. Um, carried that through to a zoology degree and then was lucky enough to uh, make a radio program for Radio 4 about flying foxes in the Solomon Islands, uh, which is a place I've never even heard of. Um, but in doing that, I realized there's a world out there where you can not only explore, but you can see incredible animals and tell stories about it. And not driven by money, but you can also get paid a bit uh, <laughs> rather than a lot. And a lot of my friends went off to be lawyers and so on. But uh, I found a career in television, which, um, as I often say, it's a great job. It's a slightly more difficult career, but it's, uh, it's worked out okay so far. Yeah, and then uh, similar, as, as Bill said, I think a lot of people who work in our wildlife filmmaking industry seem to have spent some time abroad. Um, when I was young, my parents were anthropologists, and their, their main study was this, with this tribe of Indians in, in Colombia. Uh, so they took me out there for a year or so to li live with, a, with this tribe. And I was at that age where, a bit like Bill, you, I just kind of ran wild and pretty much accepted that was going to be my life from, from then on. So... I went properly feral and native and uh, wore a G-string and had a blowpipe and a pet monkey on my head. And I guess similar to Bill, that set up a kind of wanderlust and a sense of adventure and love for the natural world, which carried on with me even through my teenagerhood, where I forgot all about that kind of thing and got into, uh, you know, all things teenagers get into, but um, ended up thinking, okay, what am I going to do? I'll go and do zoology. Uh, and then I also had a passion for art and, um, I never thought I'd get a job in wildlife TV because 
I'd messed around a bit as a teenager and even at university. But um, I, I guess I found that that, that combination of uh, passion for animals and, and then an interest in aesthetics and creativity, this really seemed to be a great job. And uh, once I finally got work experience, I made sure I didn't mess it up. <laughs> Well, you have it. You have yeah. it. I'll, to to be honest, the the resume of of you both is just wow. I mean, uh, Tom, producer of Planet Earth one and two. I think you know those for me. You know, in my aged years, going back to the early days of of wildlife documentaries, I think Planet Earth is when for me when I think things changed as far as the intimacy that we're seeing with animals and, and the technology, but both of you working on animal that's on, on Netflix where, where I'm at night on earth, tiny world. I mean, all of these series are just, wow. Jaw dropping now, big beasts. Now big beasts. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Big beasts on, on Apple TV plus. I, I highly recommend our listeners watch it. It, Every animal documentary, it's just getting better and better and better. And we'll get we'll get into it a little bit. I guess my good question is, you know, after doing all these films that you've done, why did what was the genesis of Big Beast in this series, this 10 part series? And it's season one, right? So there's there's gonna be more. Yeah, hopefully, yeah. So, uh, well, we worked on Tiny World and we had so much fun making Tiny World. And that was a bit of a passion project. Uh, I'd always wanted to do the ultimate series about small small animals and we loved working with apple on it they they really pushed us and they also you know, really helped us find this tone that wasn't too reverential that was kind of inviting and fun and narrative and they were really pleased with it i think it played out really well for them uh and so we we, we were keen to do more and i guess at the time rather than doing this more of the same uh we thought well what happens if we flip that on its head and looked at the bigger animals which was an easy thing to suggest, uh, but then when you work it through and think, well, actually, most of the big animals, the animals people see a lot, and actually their perspective is not that dissimilar from us. You know, we're <laughs> in the scheme of things, we're pretty big animals too. So they most most big animals' eye level is about the same as us. So it was it was a bit trickier. But the more we looked into, I don't know, the kind of actual deep deep biology and physiology of being of being big, we realised. And people tend to focus on, you know, big animals being ferocious and scary or kind of mammoth, but they didn't focus on some of the more kind of relatable human problems of being big. So we thought actually there's some really nice material to work with and, and to slightly recast big animals, not as these big, scary, awesome creatures, but as, as creatures like you and I with, with problems and really riffing with that idea that it's not so easy being big. You assume big animals have it easy, but the bigger the animal, the more problems they face. Yeah, no, I, and, and <laughs> just, yeah, I mean, just starting off with, to give a little, I don't want to give the away the whole series, but some of the storyline. So episode one starts with gray whales and I'm thinking, okay, this would be interesting. You know, I want to learn more about gray whales and being from a native from California, I knew they were off our coast, but you're right, watching them navigate or the mom and calf navigate up. And, and there's this, a scene in there. I don't want to give up way too much, but hunting by orcas and they're hiding in the kelp beds. You're right. Problems like mom's got to save that baby, right? Or, or protect yeah. that baby. Yeah. It's, so now, yeah. I mean, that, that was one quite strong theme throughout the series, actually, is apart from the giant octopus, which is always in 
also in that episode, which has a huge amount of babies. Most big animals invest a lot into their into their offspring, just like we do. And so, you know, if, if you're a if you're a frog and you have loads of tadpoles, if a few die, it's kind of you know that that's what happens. Whereas if you're a grey whale mum and you put all this energy into raising this young and then taking on this massive migration, you know, if it, if it doesn't work, which is quite a risk, it's it's a huge investment and a huge loss. And I suppose because they have to, you know, have so much investment in their offspring, they also uh, become very emotionally attached to them. So it's the stakes are much higher. It's quite interesting. I, we we kind of link the behaviour with the anatomy because it's about being big. And and uh, these grey whales in question, they, they give birth in, in Mexico in the warm waters there where it's, there are no orcas and it's nice and warm for bringing up the calves in its first few days before it's got any, any blubber to keep it warm itself. But then if they don't have breakfast, they've got to travel 5,000 miles north to Canada via California. I'm afraid you're stopping, stopping off a point for a grey whale. But um, in fact, they don't even stop. They carry on going. And, and you realise that uh, whales are built um, to be this massive mouth so that they can hoover up a huge amount of tiny prey and a, an enormous motor off the back, the tail, um, <laughs> which is, you know, a kind of weird way to look at the whale. But if you think about blue whales, which are also in that episode, you know, they, they, um, they have to eat millions of uh, krill, these, these kind of inch-long um, crustaceans. They've got this enormous mouth, which can they can swallow half a million calories worth of, of krill. But they, these patches of krill can be hundreds of miles apart. So they, they also have, are constantly moving from one patch of food to the other. Gather the big patch of food and then move on. So it's it's gulp and move, really, from that point of view. No, no it, yeah, it, it, that's, you, you mentioned that, and, and it triggered me that, Yes, I, I learned, you know, it's like I, I do study these animals and, and we do the podcast on them and, and we learn everything about them. But when I watch Big Beast, I'm still learning new things that that I never knew. I didn't think it was half a million calories in a goal. And, <laughs> and, and I do want to mention to the listeners, too, when, when it is a gray whale episode, it's not just about gray whales. You had blue whales in there. You had orcas, uh, the 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 large octopus and the, the, the red Pacific octopus and then uh, other species in there. So it's not just about great whales. It's about all of those species in that biome. Right. Yeah, that's right. Actually, it was, it was something we first played around with on tiny world. And I, I I'm surprised, but I, I don't think it's been done on any other wildlife series and, and big beast carries on it, which is to kind of intercut uh, animal narratives with each other and to really be much more rigorous about telling a story because I think if I was to kind of, you know, critique some natural history programs, including ones I've made, is, is that they tend to just be one sequence after other after another joined by a kind of, you know, a segue or a link. Whereas this, we really tried to uh, build the characters, give them some sort of, you know, challenge they're trying to overcome and string that out over the episode and intercut stories. And we actually watched, I don't know, dramas and feature films and realised to do that, you have to have much shorter sequences that don't resolve, but get the the audience used to a rhythm where you're going to come back to these stories. Um, and it makes for a much more enjoyable watch, I think, That's, especially because they're only half an hour long. I think you get to the end, you go, wow, I, I really enjoyed watching that. Whereas even the most most beautiful, epic wildlife shows, sometimes around 30 minutes, you start going, how much longer is this going to go for? <laughs> because you don't know where it's going and there's no particular yeah. story. So it's just, and another thing. Um, so, yeah, we really enjoyed doing that. Uh, and I think it makes for a much more enjoyable family watch. It, it does. It absolutely does. And that was like kind of leading me to my next question, because 
you are storytelling. I mean, you're, you're telling the story of these animals. And so what does that creative process look like? Because I'm sitting here thinking from your standpoint, as I'm watching it, uh, you know, trying to produce this series and put the series together. Do these stories just unfold in front of you or is it like, okay, we capture all of these different behaviors and then we just kind of link them? I think, I think um, initially you're looking for characters and as we've been saying, relatable characters. So that grey whale is a, is a mother with her cubs, and then a lot of the viewers will relate to that. Uh, in episode two, it's the elephant seal, which is a, an enormous fat old male past his prime. Some of us can relate to that too. So <laughs> um, it, it's about finding these characters uh, and really, you know, it, interrogating those characters, working out what those characters are doing, interpreting their behaviour through those characters and those personalities and that attitude. Um, you, and then seeing what these challenges are. There usually is, you know, in, in classic storytelling, what they call an inciting incident. Something happens. So, the, the, you know, the, the grey whales, uh, they get to a point where they have to leave Mexico because they're hungry and mum's running on empty. Uh, or in the case of the uh, elephant seal, he turned up at his beach to, to find the females and then another... Well, elephant comes along. The elephant seal comes along with the same idea and, and beats him in a fight. What's he going to do now? So often in storytelling, you, you need to find those characters. You need to see what the big deal is they're facing, what, what happens, and then how they how they cope. What the reaction is to that. So those are all storytelling tropes, but they're also things that happen in the natural world. So all of these programs are you know we use story to engage our viewer more, but, but those are real stories of what happens within the animal kingdom. The process yeah. is really, it's a really interesting process for making wildlife films because we go out with quite a solid plan of how we think it's going to happen. And then of course you get in the field and nothing happens how you plan. And, and also, you know, a moment you're getting, you're, you're aiming for, which you think is going to be spectacular is okay. And then you capture something you weren't expecting and it turns out to be so much more you know, impactful than, than something you were, you were trying to design. And I would say that's generally the rule that, but the best things that you see in wildlife shows are the things you don't expect, you know, when it's when the animal does something slightly out of the ordinary, a good example being in planet earth to the race of snakes, you know, we weren't expecting that at all. We thought we might get one snake, maybe catching one lizard. So when we saw it, it was like, Whoa, what's going on here? So then when, once you've filmed all this stuff, you then have to go back into the edit and think, Okay, so that was our plan, and that's what happened. What do we make? And it's um, it's a. I guess that's where Bill and I have been honing our craft is is to be able to look at that stuff and think of a think of a way to turn that into a structure. But it takes a lot of iteration and working with you know people like Apple to get get their feedback and hearing what they think about it. So it's it's a bit like a it's a bit of a whittle really you kind of slowly mm -hmm. chip away to see what the shape of it is one of, the, one of the more dramatic examples in this series i think would be the orangutan episode where you want to go and film the big male orangutan because that's the biggest tree dwelling animal in the world and hugely charismatic not often seen you know we had great access to uh, an orangutan in borneo um but to be fair he didn't do much so what do you do then? And, and I've, you know, all credit to the team, the uh, producer, Emma, who, who made that episode. And they realised that the way to tell the story of a, a big male orangutan is through his origin story. Really. Where did he come from? How did he start out life? So when you work for the orangutans, a male will, will be the boss in a particular area and a lot of the uh, youngsters will be his. And so we told the story of growing up through a number of his, his uh, baby boys. And so you see... 
you know, those first tentative steps away from mum, you see how they learn to navigate around the canopy, you see how they learn to climb on fragile branches, how to deal with threats, how to build beds. Uh, again, hugely relatable because you, you see a young male building his, his bed at night because they, they're so big, they have to uh, have a sprung mattress in the canopy and then a bigger orangutan comes and comes and turns them out of bed. So uh, <laughs> it's quite, you know, it, it, amazing things once you start looking at them. One of the really useful kind of developments in science is, is I think there's more and more weight into, you know, the understanding that animals are conscious, they have emotions, they're cognitive and all these things, and, you know, they have personalities. And, uh, and so I think what the, that gives us a license to explore those, those aspects. And, and we always say to the directors, if you're out in the field and you see the animal doing something and it, and it reminds you of something you did or your dad mm. does or whatever, you know, run with that, you know, don't, don't, don't kind of just think it and then go off and carry on filming kind of think, well, what do I need? What shots do I need to do to really bring that to life? Because if you saw it and thought it, there probably is an aspect of that being true, you know? So the gorilla we, we filmed with, uh, I think that came out last Friday, you, you know, he was this, slightly aging dad who's still got these young kids probably carried on having kids too late and, and now is a bit tired but he's also very kind of dutiful so you can you can really oh i can certainly relate to kind of yeah you know, me too wanting to be a good dad and uh, play with your kids but being oh god not this again <laughs> and, <laughs> and you really can see it in him it's, it's and, and that suddenly makes it makes the gorilla macumba seem so much more human no it, it, it is and and you know having a little bit of a fan moment Thinking about that, because you said honing your craft and, and I'm sitting here thinking, you know, real quick, my sister works in Georgia where they, she works in the film industry. They come in with a script, right? And the actors come in or actresses and, and all the film crew and, and they act that scene out 20, 30, 40 times, whatever it is, until they get it right. Different angles, different lighting, all that stuff. I, I mean, I was really impressed watching it, how shows and movies come together. In wildlife documentary, you don't have really a script. Like you said, you go out. And you're like, okay, we, we kind of want to capture this, but then it just kind of unfolds in front of you. And so from the back end, I guess really quick, how many thousands of hours of film do you have that you, <laughs> you boil down to a 30 minute, you know, well, Bill, Bill will be able to just, tell you that. Yeah. 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 We've got a, a, one of our researchers put together a list. The average hours of footage per episode filmed was 170.42 hours. And that comes down to 30 minutes. So that's quite a lot. Isn't that's it? somewhere between 300 and 400 to one. Yeah. I'd say that was, that was pretty, I'd say 400 to one was about for these big landmark series. <laughs> this one was probably less because it was filmed during the pandemic. So we had to focus mm. a bit more, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. yeah, no, you, you're going through a huge amount of stuff. And the problem is until that magical moment happens, you don't know whether it's going to be in the evening, in the bright sunlight, in the rain, or with which character. And, and so you just have to kind of keep your options open. So you're filming a huge amount. And then whenever, and it always seems to happen at the end of the shoot, uh, it, you, you know, when you see the makings of, when, the, when they say, and then finally on the last day we got the shot. It, it actually often is the case because I think you're slowly working out exactly the best plan of attack to, you know, find the animal, film it. So by the end of the shoot, you're really dialed into its behaviors, but it's only then you go, right. Okay. That was the moment. Now we need to get all this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. So we work with editors who are really good at just, you know, plowing through all the material and start 
picking out the moments they really like and building a sequence out of that. And, and I'll say, you know, just to get these things I've got in front of me, hats off to the production team. They, they as Tom said, it was during the pandemic, uh, November 2020, July 22, they organised 84 suits for the eight, for the 10 programmes. So that's about eight suits per programme. 1,710 days of filming. So divide that by 10. It's 170 days of filming. So, you know, a lot of effort goes into, into creating that half hour. But the idea is, I mean, that's there's what's so much fun with wildlife is you could you could kind of make you know as long as it's true and scientifically accurate you could make any shape you want and um, as something slowly kind of goes from this amorphous blob of a film into this really quite honed series it's it's really fun watching it and in fact I, the more I do this the more I love just being in the edit and. You know, when you, when you get the right shot and the right line of commentary and the right music going together, it's, you can create a really powerful emotion. Uh, it's ma- it's magic. It, 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 it is absolutely magic. I mean, it, like talking about the elephant seals, the beach master, you know, I love that name for uh, the big <laughs> males. And these are the southern uh, elephant seals. I've seen the northern in California, but I have not yet seen a southern elephant seal here. But... Uh, then I'm thinking you have the leopard seal, which I was very fortunate to see here in New Zealand and albatross. Wow. Uh, yeah, very rare. It was very rare uh, hauled out on the beach. But like, so when they're at, when your your crews are out there filming, is it like, oh, there's a leopard seal? Let's go follow it. But you had this whole sequence with the penguins, and it. it I'm not going to give away the end, but it's it's spectacular. Is that, again, I, I guess my question is, did that just unfold or is it like, okay, we're going to go get a leopard seal and you the look res- for one and follow it. The research process is, is pretty mammoth. You know, you, you not only are looking, you decide on the, on the animals, you decide where to film them. Quite often you decide on the individual animal you're going to go and film. So I'll go back a bit to the gorilla. Uh, it, it's a Western lowland gorilla called Macumba who's been habituated for, about 20 years. In fact, Tom and I both have been lucky enough to go and film that gorilla before and appreciate how difficult it is. Uh, maybe we'll come back to the gorillas. The leopard seal, uh, they worked with, uh, our team worked with some scientists who took them to the place where they would most likely see a number of um, seals. Uh, David, which is obviously there's lots of food, we did around a penguin colony. Um, I think it was actually for some reason I can't remember why it was a particularly bad year for, for leopard seals. I think they were quite thinly spread. Normally they they come a lot of them to a very few number of places, but um, they go with the scientists anyway to find the best place and the best animal, and then they will follow it as much as they can and get to know it, get it used to the boat they're in. Uh, that habituation process, which we call it, which is getting the animals used to the, the crew, or the camera. Or to whatever is very important. So you're not disturbing the animal. If you're disturbing the animal, it won't do its natural behavior. We want to sell natural behavior. So we treat the animals with respect under guidance from the guys, uh, scientists. Um, yeah, and, and you basically, you go, you work out what you want and you, it's a game of chess. You've got to get everything right to, to, to win. Yeah, I would say the, um, the, the times now where film crews just go to a place and kind of think, let's film what we see a, a, a pretty pretty limited these days because the, the kind of sophistication of wildlife films has is, is, is gone up and up and up and and we're really trying to tell stories so you want to be in the place where you know you've got a chance of 
seeing that animal intimately and being able to really cover its behavior. So often it's working with scientists, as Bill said, people who've been do doing research projects who've habituated the animals to you or a really known place to go, I don't know, for example, snow leopards, you you wouldn't just turn up in the Himalayas and wait for one to pass. You, you have to go where they yeah. know their movements. Um, or you work with smaller animals, which are, you know, which are much more uh, habituated people or easier to kind of get close to. I mean, a great example being uh, the, the race of snakes, you know, that once they're locked into following those lizards, you can get pretty close because that's, that's all they're focused on or, yeah, so it's really, or if you go to islands like, uh, you know, penguins or elephant seals, those elephant seals, you, you know, because they're not used to humans, you can be right next to them when they're doing their thing and they just act like you're not there at all, which it's quite intimidating when you're standing next to these huge beasts that rear up twice your height and start smacking the hell out of each other. <laughs> the other thing we haven't talked about with this series in particular is, as Tom mentioned right at the beginning, we wanted to see the world through the eyes of big beasts, which meant, or, or and also to present them as big beasts. As big, and that means you've got to be close to them. You've got to be low and with your wide angle on, looking up at those elephant seals to show them at their best. So not only have you got to find some good elephant seals, but you've got to find some elephant seals where you can legitimately get in the right position to show their world. So, you know, with the gorilla again, you need to be close. It's not just getting a the gorilla on the end of a long lens. It's, it's being within, you know, I think the, the limit is seven metres of the gorilla because they don't want to pass on any diseases to them. But you want to be seven metres from your, your gorilla so that you can really show it at its best and, and present your big feet. Oh, like you said, it, it, as a kid, Mutual of Omaha's, I think Wild Kingdom, it was back in the day, like you're right, just shoot, shoot the animals on the plains of Africa in a Jeep and, and then put a film out. Today, yeah. you are right there. I mean, the the filmmaking today. So I guess the technology, like I, I was going to say, is it long lenses or you, I guess you're saying you're right up close to them. So I, I guess my next question would be, you are working with scientists and people that can, because you're all over the world. I mean, you look at this list, the giant otter. Uh, episode the gorilla the hippo brown bear ostrich orangutan tiger polar bear you're you're all over the world yeah so that's massive it's a massive <laughs> crew yeah so i guess i guess the question is uh scientists are there helping you find them track them or like you said they're doing research with them and hey habituate I think it's nice for, for the scientists, I hope it's nice for the scientists to have a bit of a break from the normal day and have a film crew along. I, th I think there have been quite a few film crews along recently, which um, causes a problem of its own. But um, it's, it's it's great. You know, it brings attention to these animals. It brings some money in. You know, you pay these scientists and the tracking and the, and the, the lodges and all. You know, it's ecotourism and you're, paying, you're there for a long time and you're being super respectful of the animals and you're presenting an investment for them at the end of it. So I think it's a real win-win. Yeah, well, what I was going to say, actually, I, I think also what's interesting is quite often scientists, you know, their, their research is data-led. So, you know, they go out into the field and every day they're doing the same thing. And they don't often get paid just to sit and watch animals. And, and that's what camera teams are doing, you know, from, from, from the moment the animals are up at, at dawn till dusk, we're there watching them. And so you get to know them in a very different way. And there's been numerous examples when we've been working with scientists where they've got really excited because they've never seen that behavior before because they've just been doing, I don't know, transects or that's not, that's not their job. Um, we recently worked on a, a film about a whale where we, uh, we, we, we uncovered some behaviors. I won't tell you what they are because they're yet to come out yet, but we uncovered some behaviors that the scientist is writing three papers on now. Well, and actually, in Big Beast, in Big Beast, I was going to say in the elephant seal episode, the humpback whale 
We've got quite a few whales, it turns out, because uh, they're quite big. Um, but this one particular lone humpback whale, as, as some of your listeners may know, humpback whales often work together to corral the krill. They'll do this incredible, incredible behaviour called bubble netting, where they uh, dive deep. One of them creates a curtain of bubbles that encircles the krill, and then the krill go into the middle, and then the, the, the family of humpbacks comes up underneath with their mouths wide open and engulfs these krill in their mouth. That's what you do if you're in a family. If you're by yourself, you can't really do that. So our, our, our team was with some scientists, but they, they put the drone up in the air and they filmed this male uh, going around in circles with his pectoral fin, which I, I can't remember, I think it's about 10 feet long, his pectoral fin, going round and round, uh, creating circles in the sea, as Pom so poetically wrote, creating a vortex, um, pulling the, the, the krill into the middle and then lunges through his own vortex and um, gets the krill. And... It's amazing. And the scientists, we, can't, we couldn't work out whether it was never seen before or never filmed before. In the end, we went for never filmed before because, you know, quite possibly someone has seen it. They couldn't find any records of it. Um, mm. And it's not only new science, but it's, it's some of the most beautiful imagery in the series. It really is something to look out for. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Oh, it is. It, I, I, it, yeah. It, it, like I said, I, I did not know that behavior. We, we actually did an episode on humpback whales and talked about the bubble netting and and to see that that new behavior and it's exciting that that the scientists working with you i know if i was out in the field i would love for you to like oh come film what i'm doing you know yeah, <laughs> i'm yeah, bored yeah, yeah. you know and and, <laughs> and to show show off what we're doing yeah that's that's really exciting tom I, since i've i've got you on the air yeah and i know you worked on planet earth too as as one of the the producers big producers it's a story I always talk about. It, I think it's it's one of the a very important conservation story that a lot of people aren't aware of. I guess the general public's not aware of. And that, that has to do with the, the saiga antelope. And I bring it up every now and then to talk about the dangers of, of the saiga that were hunted to, to less than a thousand. Then they bounce back up to hundreds of thousands. Then they go back down to a few thousand. Uh, I think it was 20, 000, 2014 or 15. 2015, uh, your yeah, crew was out right. there. Yeah, yeah, they were filming them over the period of three weeks, and about two hundred thousand saiga just dropped dead. Bacterial infection in that that large proboscis knows that they have. Okay, I guess what did the crew? How did how did that impact the film? How did that impact the crew? Because it, as a scientist, as horrific as it was, it was a big warning to to what these animals are facing in the wild. But from a filmmaker's perspective, wow! I mean, that just must have been devastating. Yeah, no, totally. You know, it was it was uh, the the producer Chad and Hunter who you know he'd always wanted to film them, and you normally see them filmed in I, th I can't remember where it is, somewhere in Russia, I think, where they're kept in a kind of a large enclosure. But we wanted to go and film the wild herds, uh, and then they turned up. And as you as you say, we were getting these calls that the only ones they were finding were dead ones. Um, and it, yeah, it was, it was really distressing. And, and I think at the time, no one knew why they were dying. And, you know, there was a feeling that it could just carry on and carry on. Um, 
I, I, you, you sound like you know about as much as I do about it. It, it wasn't my shoe, but I, I think it was a bacterial disease, as you say. And I think they, it's two things, kind of a, a, you know, a perfect storm, really. Both, both situations created by us. One, one that you've got, you know, the pressures of hunting mean the genetic pools become massively limited. Uh, so, so there's not much fitness in the genes and variation. And then I think also the, the, the hotter climate that's, a, that's coming through the summer, you know, allows these bacteria to breed more. So you've got these not very genetically fit saiga up against, you know, rapidly breeding bacteria, which can breed for longer and, uh, you know, larger numbers. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's devastating. And I, I, they've recovered from that, haven't they? But as you say, yeah. it's, it's just that you feel like these cycles, as with everything in the world these days, are just going to get bigger and bigger swings and um, going to be harder for animals to, to, to survive them. And, yeah, it's a similar problem all over the world, isn't it? We, we've, we've taken so many, especially the larger animals, down to their very few numbers, and now we've got these rebreeding programs and reintroduction programs. But if they're all genetically too similar, they've got no resistance. I think it's an interesting thing with, with Big Beast, uh, bringing it back onto that for a moment. But, um, you know, what, one thing we realised when filming them is that they travel a long way. And when an animal travels a long way, it needs a lot of space. And space is something which is becoming an increasingly rare commodity these days. So, for example, the grey whale we keep talking about, they travel up to 10,000 miles a year. And that's through several countries' uh, waters, Mexico, USA, uh, Canada, they meet all sorts of problems on the way, of course. Ship strikes, entanglement in fishing gear, ocean noise, general habitat degradation, you know, quality of water, lack of food. Um, some of those things are affected by climate change as well. So, so the whale, because it travels so far, will face so many problems. Elephants, you know, they can roam 8,000 miles a year, 20 or 30 miles a day. You think you make a big nature zone which is 30 miles across, but that would keep an elephant in for a day. It's got about 364 to go. So... Um, it's it's worrying. I mean, there are lots of things one can take from this, of course. Number one is if you do protect the elephants, then you're, you're inherently protecting a big area, which has a great knock-on effect, uh, effect on many, many other species, many habitats. And so, you know, they, these umbrella species or keystone species are, are a great champion for the wild, in a way. I mean, look at India. They have they've gone to huge efforts to protect the tiger. Tiger numbers, as you know, were went down massively over the last century. But in the last uh, few years, they've gone up again uh, in India. I think in the official stats that they've gone up 33% in four years, I, I may, may not be quite right there, but that's great news. The problem with that is that the, the areas that are protected for tigers in India haven't grown at the same rate. So what you're getting now is uh, increasing density of tigers in quite small areas. And when big cats collide, the uh, consequences can also be quite massive. So actually our, our film does, although it's not a, a conservation-minded series, uh, these things are touched on. And in the case of the tiger film, the fact that more tigers are being brought into a smaller area leading to conflict uh, is part of the story and um, a really fascinating aspect of conservation, I suppose. Yeah, it was really interesting, the locations we chose to film and, you know, to, to feature are essentially the last great wildernesses on the planet because those are the places where you find the, find big animals. You know, they they their needs are so much from food and travel and that that kind of thing that there are these keystone species that represent the last wildernesses. But 
when you see it from a big animal's perspective, you start realizing that they're not great wildernesses necessarily more, but they're more like kind of giant safari parks. Uh, and these animals have, you know, they're not connected. So they're kind of, they're slightly trapped in these little pockets of uh, wilderness. You see it with the orangutans. So you, from the top of the trees where the orangutans and our film booth are, you see the oil palm plantations. I think orangutans in Borneo have lost over half of their habitat in the last 20 years. I mean, that is it. Isn't it? And, and it, that's the one we know about. You often see that on, on documentaries, but lowland gorillas, uh, they're losing thousands of miles, of square miles of uh, forest in the, in the Congo every year due to, you know, well, logging and people needing to survive. And there are all sorts of reasons for it, but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty worrying. Yeah, but going back to the cyber, I think I was going to say that I think there's a similar problem happening now with uh, musk oxen as well, you know, uh, I think mm. it's, you know, the bacteria spreading through the population as, as it gets warmer. Um, but yeah, I, th I think you're right. I think it's, it's it, these kind of things are going to pop up more and more regularly each year. I Thank you for, for, for saying that, because that was kind of where I wanted to lead you it, as filmmakers. And as you cover these, the, these stories and, and you are doing conservation, you just don't know it. Yeah. You're not saying, okay, well, you know, we're, we're, we're setting aside this, these acreage and we're saving these animals. But as you tell their life stories and inspiring the young generation, you know, we always say in our podcast, you never know who's the next Jane Goodall, who's the next David Attenborough, uh, you know, inspiring this, this young generation. So you're doing that because that's where I started years ago, filmmakers like yourself inspiring me. So thank you for what you do. Are you seeing it? Is it getting more difficult to film these animals? Like you said, you mentioned there's more film crews. It, I guess it's a two-parter. One is our nature documentaries getting more popular as your careers have gone. But the second part of that is a separate question, but I'll just throw it out there. Are you finding it harder and harder to cover these animals? Uh, you know, as you said, their, their environment is shrinking, you know, as, as human uh, encroachment increases. Um, I'll do the popular you can do with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think that there's certainly a lot more opportunities for people to watch nature programs. And, and that's a great thing. You know, when, when Bill and I started out, uh, you know, the BBC was more or less, so I guess it was Nat Geo in, in America, but it was these kind of higher end wildlife shows. The BBC was more or less the only game in town. Um, and now, you know, with the kind of explosion of the streamers and then the kind of I guess, connection of the global market. Uh, there's all sorts of places who are interested in commissioning wildlife shows, which is great. You know, uh, you know, it, we, we always say no matter what the channel is, you know, no matter what its political leanings, if, if they're showing a wildlife show, that's got to be a good thing, hasn't it? Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, some people go, oh, would you really work for them? Whereas I think, no, wh why not? You know, that's even, almost or even more important people who wouldn't normally watch wildlife shows are watching them. I, I think that's a really positive thing. And so I think there is is a lot more popularity. That, that does make it more challenging, you know, as we discussed 30 years ago, you could tell people there was a place called Borneo where there were orangutans. They go, wow. Now they're like, yeah, we went there on our honeymoon. You know, we saw the orangutans too. So, <laughs> right. so yeah. you have to dig deeper. But for me, I like that's great. You know, it's a, it's a creative challenge to, to not just rely on, did you know there is a thing called an orangutan and having to kind of think, okay, how can we be smart about, you know, it's what, what dramas do all the time. Don't you? How many cop thrillers have we seen? But people keep thinking of new ways to add an extra twist. So mm -hmm. I love that creative challenge. Bill, you can ask whether it answer whether it's <laughs> hard to film it. Yes, thank you, Tom. It's, it's a complicated one. I think uh, it varies massively. So 
One instance from this series, The Lowland Gorilla. I was lucky enough to go and film with The Lowland Gorillas. You know, I, think it was, I think it was 1999, and, and it was literally, we went there to film it because it was the first successful attempt at habituating Western Lowland Gorillas. People had seen mountain gorillas in Rwanda and Uganda because they live in quite open habitats. You can get the site close. Diane Fossey had worked out how to habituate them. Mm-hmm. But part of that was being, the gorilla can see you coming. Um, and, and gradually accept you in your approach. Western Lowland Gorillas lived in dense, denser rainforest where you can't, they, they can't see you coming till the last minute, at which point they freak because it will probably be a hunter. They, they get hunted for the mm-hmm. bush there. So it was really, really difficult to um, habituate Western Lowland Gorillas. An incredible primatologist uh, called Chloe Tickletter was working with the Bayaka forest people, tracking them day after day to go through the forest and find the gorillas. So, in that film, we had two brief sequences with the gorillas, like there's one through each. But you, you can kind of see it, and we're telling you in the country there's an amazing size to the West Lowland Gorilla. Now, I mean, in Big Beast, the West Lowland Gorillas, you, you've got Macumba, the silverback, dozing um, casually with a cameraman seven metres away with uh, the babies playing all around him, um, the, the mums also. Um, pretty relaxed, have their babies near the camera crew. You know that. To, to think that that is where we reach when from when I was there in 1999 is unbelievable. So, in some ways, filming wildlife has become easier due to incredible individual people and incredible projects. Um, also, some wildlife has become easier because of the number of tourists that go and see them. Like Tom was saying, you know. Number of tourists against see tigers in India means that tigers in the reserve, a lot of them don't mind a vehicle drawing up next to them and kind of carry on. You can't leave the road in India, so that makes it difficult. But there's also a flip side to it, which is that, for example, I went to Hwangi in Zimbabwe where we went to film for Night on Earth. And um, that was, we were actually focusing on, on elephants um, being hunted by lions at night. And we went to the place where Cecil the lion had been uh, in killed. So you may recall that story. It, it really it dawned on me that we were in Hawaii, which is a massive national park, a lot of lions, or relatively, I think it's actually only about 200 lions, but it feels like a lot of lions. The problem is that any of the territories, the prides, which are near the edge of the park, and that means quite a lot of the prides to the park is quite uh, long and relatively thin. So any of the prides near the edges of the park, if a male wanders off, and it turns out male lions are quite naughty, they can often have several families going at the same time. <laughs> so if they go and see that other woman uh, just outside the park, they quite like they get shot. So what happens to the family that's in the park is a mother male comes along, takes over the pride, kills the cubs. And this is a really complicated issue because you've got a massive national park with a really, really high turnover of, of, of Hubs, uh, huge mortality, and a pretty, and therefore a pretty low lion population. Mm-hmm. And it was quite difficult to sell lions. Um, there aren't as many, you know, lion numbers have gone down massively in, in mm-hmm. uh, years. So I think for some of those kind of classic savanna situations, I think that uh, it is much harder. The numbers aren't so great. Even the wildebeest, you know, the, the great migration is, is now surrounded by uh, fields, agricultural fields. So if any wildebeest stray off the path, then um, they quite likely get poisoned mm-hmm. or shot. So I do think it is complicated. You can't, there's not a one size fits all answer. You've got habituation has helped. You've got specific places like snow leopards where you know you can go and film now because some trailblazers have gone and done it. But they're just sort of 
turn up and film animals situation, I think it's much harder. Yeah, you really yeah. know. I'd say you really notice it when you try and film a kind of famous spectacle, like I don't know, flamingos breeding or monarch butterflies. You know, the kind of the, the or the wildebeest migration. When you have to take into account the uh, the more extreme and unpredictable weather, and then the decline in population numbers, I'd say these days you go to film these things, and you no matter you know the, uh, the one thing we haven't mentioned also is the technology you know you've got drones all these cameras so you, you can bring it to life in this amazing way that wasn't possible yet many years ago but somehow you look at that footage from you know the 80s and 90s and you go wow it just doesn't look anything like that so mm. uh, you know people people don't really notice it because it's incremental each year each year is more or less the same as last year but when you when i think across my career i've been doing this for almost 30 years now I sound old. Um, it definitely has changed, yes. And I think it's it's less predictable and less spectacular when it does happen. I could talk to you both for another couple hours. I, I, I'll, I'll try to wrap it up with just a couple more questions. Bill, it was it was great you brought up India and, and they're reintroducing cheetah, uh, the lions there. They're trying to protect the Asiatic lions. But like you said, the, the other parts of the planet do you see yourselves or hopefully somebody bringing these stories to life more because big beast is amazing. And it does, it, it shows you the intimacy and like, like Tom, you were saying the the technology is, is like I said, planet earth, I think planet earth changed it for me. Like that's really when the HD, but yeah. even now today watching big beast uh, on Apple TV plus it, you, you're really more intimate with the animals. I guess my question is, do you see yourselves ever telling these conservation stories where, uh, like you said, the, this park, you know, Cecil's a, a hot potato. You, you probably wouldn't want to tackle that maybe as a filmmaker, but, you know, telling the story about those lions, about going over to the mistress and getting shot. You know? And, you know, these challenges these animals are facing, because really this decade, I feel, is like where we need to make a lot of change. And I think we're getting the, the groundswell support around the world for, yeah. to take action, especially from the younger generation. So do you see those stories coming out in the future? I, I think it's, it's, again, a complicated question. There are lots of, uh, well, there are lots of factors. One thing is it's quite cyclical. I mean, I think, in the, I hope I get this right, probably in the early 90s, there was a series on uh, Channel 4 in the UK called Fragile Earth, which... Uh, you know, really did expose a lot of a lot of these things, ivory and deforestation and so on. And people were amazed by those shows. They were revelatory. They probably changed policy. Um, but ultimately, as a viewing experience, when you get home from a hard day at work, they're pretty depressing. And I think that we then went through a period where there weren't many wildlife programs. Planet Earth 1, I think, came back and reinvigorated the scene. And I think you're right to bring up Planet Earth, who also did that. Um, in between times, there's quite often a, a surge of conservation programs, and then people get depressed and go, okay, enough of that. I just want my warm evening entertainment. And so it, it is a bit cyclical. The, what's happened since that time is there are more platforms. So I think, interestingly, if people are interested in conservation stories, they can definitely find them on Instagram, on YouTube, on Twitter. You know, there's unbelievable... My Twitter stream is my own personal uh, news feed, I think it's got incredible information about conservation. It is there. Um, does it have to be on a big TV show? Well, some TV shows have, have tried it recently. For example, Our Planet on, on Netflix, I know that they, I mean, it's sort of like a footnote, isn't it, on the end of various scenes, it would say, oh, and this habitat has been degraded, which was 
important to do. It wasn't a full-on conservation program. I think um, we always talk about it, and we have development meetings here where we talk about what we're going to do next. And we're all conservationists who work in wildlife tally. We all want to make those programs. We all have made variations of those programs on animal that you mentioned on Netflix. We, with each group of animals, we we talked about their specific issues in the 21st century. These programs get people to fall in love with animals. They get to understand them a bit more. If they are really interested, they will find out the issues about them. Um, I think that I would love to do a conservation program that everyone really wanted to watch. But it's it's the Ivory Game is a brilliant film, um, and that is it's like a, a, a Jason or Virunga, film, yeah, or Virunga. They, they exist. But there are some also, and because they are on these platforms where they never go away, you can go and find those. I, I think the bottom line is there needs to be a story. Do you know what I mean? If, if it's just things are messed up in this world, you know, there's so many things that are messed up. It's like, mm. I think people get overwhelmed by it. So either you've got to give them a solution or give them something really shocking. So it's like, oh my God, I never knew that. So, uh, but I think there's only so many times you can play the same trick. So it's, it's finding an interesting story and I, th- I think there's room for everything. And then, as Phil says, what's great now is, you know, if you want to make a harder hitting conservation documentary, there will be a platform where you can find that. It might not be serving as huge audiences as the likes mm-hmm. of Apple and Netflix, that kind of thing, but they are out there. And, and I, I think our experience is it's better, it's better to get people by the heart uh, and then they will do the rest and then they want to protect things and then try the other way because all too often, then you're just preaching to the converted. It's the kind of more militant people who are already aware of conservation issues, who are probably already active. They're the ones who are going to watch these kind of things. Whereas the most important thing is to, to engage the people who don't think about animals, who don't think about nature, because they're probably the people doing the most damage because, you know, they're not aware of their, what, what their actions, the, the consequences of their actions um, so yeah, it, it's tricky, but you know, I, I would like Octopus Teacher was a fantastic mm-hmm. film, and I don't think many people would see that as a conservation film. But it probably did more during lockdown to yeah. inspire people to go out to nature and and respect and appreciate their surroundings. Not necessarily, you know, you've got to conserve that place over the, over in Africa where there's still some of those animals left. It's your your back, you know, your back door needs needs conserving and. So I think the best conservation films quite often don't feel like conservation films. No, it, it's it's amazing to get your view on it because I we struggle with it, you know, yeah, and, yeah. And in a podcast format. It, it, it's it some of the stories are really tragic, but we try to put a spin of conservation optimism. So I, you know, I, I think put it's a plug- also really important to be honest with yourself as well because I think we all go, yeah, we must take t- tell people to conserve. But then when I reflect on my actions, I know, you know, perhaps better than most people, the, the need to conserve. And I see the effects of, uh, you know, climate change or habitat destruction. But still, I choose to do things that I know are bad for the environment. So I, I think it's it's more complex than just saying, everyone, you need to do this because, yeah, yep. you know, we're all human and we're driven by the same kind of basic needs and desires. And quite often those things aren't you know, compatible with conservation. So it's trying to find more uh, subtle ways to, to encourage change. I always, always think the best thing to do is to encourage people when they've done something good rather Um, than, you know, chastise them for for doing something bad. Because I think it's only when you get a good feeling from 
doing something positive to the environment that you continue to do it. You know, if, if, if you do something good, but it feels like a kind of, you know, penance or feels painful to do it, then you're unlikely to continue doing it. So it's only if you genuinely can get that feeling of uh, fulfillment that you'll continue to do it. Well, and there's a lot of good work going around the planet and we talk about it, conservation heroes. So I put a plug there for maybe a future that telling their stories, the people on yes. the ground, these scientists that that you're working with, the ones that that aren't in the media, aren't famous, but yet uh, they're saving species and individual species. That's their whole life. Their whole purpose is to protect those animals and learn about them. So put a you plug for them. Just speaking to you, I think, yeah. I think it's, it's true though. You know, we, we get often, we're putting a huge amount of creativity into the storytelling to bring something like big beasts to, to life. And I think, you know, if the best minds really focus on how do we turn this into an amazing story that there are definitely really powerful conservation films to be made. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure, and, and and I hope to see him from both of you. I, I, I God, I've taken up a, almost an hour of your time. I just, what's next for you both, real quick? Last question. Uh, well, we are working on another series for another platform that is under wraps. I would say at the moment, it's uh, a little clue. It's the opposite end of the scale in terms of size, uh, uh, but I think it. It's using the same kind of thing, which is great relatable characters, great storytelling. I think that's a journey I'm on is, is working out how best to do that. Um, I've got a son who's eight years old, and I'm thinking more and more about how to get him involved in this world. He's, he's, he's quite interested in it, but then I dragged him down the garden when he was little, and I was going, there's going to be a book in the pond. He said, is that an aeroplane over here? He's not naturally going to fall into the same thing as as me. So I think especially more engaging and successful films, uh, personally uh, trying to help next generation um, to get engaged with it. Yeah. And for me, I I think I have two. One is, uh, you know, one of my passions in wildlife filmmaking has been to tell stories from the animal's point of view. And I think, um, technology and, and kind of, you know, more sophisticated directing and storytelling. I think there's still a real, real game changer step to do to, in order to just tell the stories actually as if you are the animal rather than you're the camera person observing them. I think that's really exciting. You know, if you watch any human drama, the camera angles and the story, they're always really carefully chosen so that you know who you are and what you're meant to be thinking. And and I think we could get even more sophisticated with wildlife shows. So I love the idea of being even more immersive. And then, yeah, making things with with impact, I think. Um, finding the way to tell those really important stories that, that you get people on a global level talking about them. That, that's really exciting. Well, and then we'll look forward to Big Beast season two and then uh, get you both back on the podcast. And I'll, I'll get my partner, Angie. She's she's asleep in Florida as we record this. <laughs> but uh, I know she would love to talk to you both, too, again. Uh, thank you both, uh, Tom Hugh Jones and Bill Markham, uh, the producers of Big Beast on Apple TV+. Plus. Look for that. It, it's an amazing series. Again, like you said, the technology, the intimacy with the animals. Uh, but again, like, like I said a little bit ago, Thank you for for doing what you do. It, it's we don't hear that often enough, and and you probably don't, you know, because you're, you know, you're the the puppet masters. I guess is a good way to say it as producers. <laughs> you know, you're from the very beginning to the end, and and you're so critical to bringing these to life. 
but but thank you thank you for inspiring millions and 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 the future conservationists so so again from the bottom of my heart from our listeners uh thank you so much oh thanks it's great speaking to you i'm really excited i just discovered your podcast for doing this and i was looking at it this morning and there's there's going to be a lot of hours of listening coming up <laughs> well good give us some feedback and let me know uh what we could do better but no thank you both so much i loved it this was great talking to you a pleasure thanks for making the time thank you with the lucky land slots you can get lucky just about anywhere this is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.